Good morning, Redeemer. My name is Dale. I am one of the pastors here. You are in now. You have come to our second week of our Advent series, Heaven and Nature Sing, where we're looking at the four songs that surround the birth of Jesus in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. And uh, I'll tell you, there's no more sentimental of a time than Christmas. And you may not guess it from the way that I generally present myself, if you know me and just the way that I act, but I can actually be pretty sentimental. Uh, And my affection for the songs and the movies of the Christmas season runs deep. Uh, It's a Wonderful Life, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Home Alone, Miracle on 34th Street, Elf, all movies I'm happy to watch with my family or alone, though preferably with my family. but I, I can, let me tell you, this is something that's true for me. It might be true for you too. One thing that's a bit tiring for a believer in Jesus, uh, and that is this, that the three members of the Trinity are not the Father, the Son, and the Spirit of Christmas, uh, which is the magical feeling that shows up at the climax of most of these movies that reminds everyone to love just a little bit more. There is no such thing as a personified spirit of Christmas as defined in most of these films. And when the Grinch or the jaded marketing executive or the loveless young woman are caught up suddenly in the spirit of Christmas at the end of a movie, I have no choice but to be a downer about it. Kids, the caroling of the Who's has no power to save. Once the Grinch's heart grows a few sizes larger, who's to say that it stays that size the rest of his life if all it's dependent on is hearing people sing without presence? There's a different spirit, though, that tends to rush upon people during the season and catch them up in singing. And last week, Pastor Kevin kicked off this set of sermons with the story of Mary's song, the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And it is not a stretch, church, to say that those are very likely among the most sung words of any song in the history of the world. They are a part of the liturgy of the church. And every culture has a liturgy. The songs that resonate most with us represent the things that we hold the most closely. And the top annual playlists that Spotify or Apple Music curate for us show what kind of music held our interest in the last year. That's not trivial, because the songs we sing give voice to what our heart feels. It's one of the continuing joys of the season, actually, that even though Christian sincerity varies wildly from person to person, the musical liturgy of Advent still redirects our focus to the stories of God's redemption. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Or a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees, O hear the angel voices, O night divine, when Christ was born. Or, what can I give him, poor as I am? 
If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? I will give my heart. And these songs are sweet to us because they remind us, they force us to remember a time when in Christ, God actually kept his promise of restoration and grace to a world that needed it deeply. The Christmas story remains a formative story for us as a culture. Like a Norman Rockwell painting, some of these Christmas hymns make us nostalgic for a time that we haven't even personally experienced. Many of them are about the, about the Messiah himself coming to the world with just a hint of Bing Crosby thrown in. And we cannot help but feel something when the old hymns play. So last week we looked at Mary's song. This week we're gonna look at Zechariah and the song he sang. He's the father of John the Baptist and he was a faithful old Jewish priest. But he needed the spirit of God to actually come upon him before his heart and his mouth were loosed to sing God's praises. There are actually two songs related to miraculous births at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. We've seen Mary's, now we look at Zechariah's, historically called the Benedictus. Benedictus Dominus Deus Israel, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. But unlike Mary's song, Zechariah's is more like a swan song, a great remembrance of God to a man who had served him his entire life, but who needed some convincing before the end that the word of God was still living and active. And so we'll look at the promises of God what he had spoken to the prophets of old, and that it is he who remembers these promises and that we can trust that he is gracious. So before we begin, let's pray and ask the Lord to meet us here. And Father, I pray for our hearts this morning. We ask that you be present. We cannot command you down just to uh, by force, but Lord, we ask that you make your way here so that you can speak to us in our hearts so that you might receive greater glory, that your people might sing again and sing new songs of you reminded of what you have done for us. And why don't you pray for your own hearts? Pray that you would listen to the Lord, that he would speak to you. Pray for me, pray that, uh, that my words would be the, the Lord's words, that anything I speak would give glory to him, that whatever is true and good remains. Lord, we ask that you be present today. Be with us, guide us. Help us to see you and see you new. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. For our first section, what we're gonna look at is the graciousness of God. Uh, but we're gonna need to set some context first because I couldn't, it would have been cruel and unusual of me to make the reader read all of the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. So we'll go through a little bit of ourselves because it's gonna be helpful to know why Zechariah was writing on a tablet and why everyone was amazed when he started talking. 
this comes from Luke 1, prior to our passage today. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and the requirements of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. Well along in years, uh, if you were curious, to a biblical audience probably meant 60 or later. So uh, for anyone in here 60 or later, I'm sorry. <laughs> but you are well along in years and that's a biblical category. Uh, Zachariah is a priest. And not only that, his wife Elizabeth, she's what's called, she's from the daughters of Aaron which if you remember way back when in Exodus, Aaron was the first priest. He was the establishing priest from the tribe of Levi. <clears throat> Aaron was Moses' brother. So this couple, they have a pedigree and a, and a history of faithful service. They were living it out because we're told that they were without blame according to the law and the ordinances. They were good. They were church-going folk. That's who they were. They served they, they had a history of serving. They were faithful, and they were remaining faithful in their duties, even though they're serving during the time of King Herod, who was a despotic and evil ruler, a puppet king over the kingdom of Israel, just established by Rome. Zechariah, he goes into work. He's on duty in the temple. You, you talked about he was from the division of Abijah. There were 24 priestly divisions, and so Zechariah is called up at this time. He's going in to serve in the temple. They all took turns. And he got chosen by lot to go to the inner sanctuary of the temple, which is directly outside the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant would be kept and where there would be a large, thick curtain around it. So he wouldn't go in there. He'd be right outside of it. He was going uh, to light at the altar of incense, uh, which, if you're curious, it's from Exodus 30. We're actually, all, of this, all of this matches to the ordinances and the, and the commands that God gave in Exodus 30. There is an altar of incense. That is what Zechariah is doing. He's still keeping up the old customs. Um, and lo and behold, he shows up to work, and directly to the right of that altar, the altar of incense, he sees an angel. Not just any angel, in fact. He sees Gabriel the same angel who will go talk to Mary in about six months and tell her that she's blessed among women. So this story takes place, the beginning of this story takes place prior to the announcement of Jesus' conception and birth. This is before that, and Gabriel is talking to Zechariah. And upon seeing him, Zechariah was afraid, the way most everybody is when they see an angel, the way Mary will be afraid when she sees an angel. And the angel says to him, opening words, Zechariah, your prayer has been answered. In his exact words, he says, we don't know what Zechariah's prayer was. That's not recorded, but we can get a sense of what his prayer was because of what the angel says to him next. He says to him, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call his name John. There will be joy and delight for you and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Which 
if anything like that was in Zachariah's prayer, or even if his prayer was just to have a child, would be a comforting thing that the angel is saying to him. And upon hearing that great proclamation from Gabriel, Zechariah responds, how can I know this? He says, I'm old. He says, Elizabeth has seen better days. How, like, how can this happen? And this is important because it's at this part of the story that it doesn't actually play out the way you might think it would play out. Because Gabriel essentially looks at, at Zechariah and he says, do you know who I am? Do you know who I work with? He's like, I, he says, I am in heaven with the Lord. When I'm not here, I'm there singing holy, holy, holy. My boss is God himself and he sent me here. What do you mean, how can you know this? I'm not here by accident. I came to tell you good news. So why is Gabriel frustrated with Isaiah? Because both, remember, if you remember last week, or just if you want to hear it, both Mary and Zechariah expressed a certain apprehension when Gabriel told them what God was going to do next. Mary, when she hears that she's going to give birth to Jesus, says, how can this be? Sounds kind of similar to how can I know this? How can this be? But then Mary says, I have never had relations with a man. But Gabriel didn't respond harshly to Mary the same way he's about to respond to Zechariah. He just told her and answered her question how it was gonna work. The Holy Spirit's gonna come upon you. Your conception will be miraculous. So why is Zechariah's treatment different? And I think we can look at this and we're saying Zechariah is not asking the same question that Mary asked. He knows where babies come from. So he's not asking how can that be? More importantly though, he knows that they don't come from Elizabeth. So when he says, how can I know this? He's not asking a question of process. How will God do this? By what means will he do this? That was Mary's question. Mary says, I don't know if you know the cause and effect of having children, but how am I supposed to have a child? I'm not even married. He's, he's not asking how will God do this? He's asking a question of capability. How can God do this? It is not possible. So, Gabriel, who came to bear this great news, realizes that Zechariah doesn't quite grasp what is happening. Gabriel's words are promises that Zechariah should recognize. Because if we compare what he is telling Zechariah with Malachi 4.5, you'll see some similarities. This is Malachi 4.5, a prophecy of the forecoming, who is going to be John the Baptist. Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Gabriel is singing the old carols to Zechariah right now. This is a prophecy of someone coming preceding the great day of the Lord. And Malachi was the last prophet that spoke in the Old Testament before the 400 years of silence and seemingly inactivity that leads us to our passage today. So Malachi says these words and Gabriel likely thought that Zechariah, the faithful priest, 
would receive the news like a gift he had long expected. But he received it like a pair of old socks. So he tells him, Zechariah, I'm gonna shut you up for about nine months. And it's gonna give you something to think about while this promise comes to fulfillment. And that's what he does. Zechariah is rendered mute, unable to speak for until after the birth of his son, John. In fact, he comes out of the temple, can't speak. Everyone's there saying, what were you doing there so long? Why are you in there for such a long time? And he just has to make signs to them because he can no longer use words. So uh, that brings us to where our passage today started. And in between the time that Zechariah saw Gabriel, sure enough, Elizabeth did conceive. Not only that, uh, Elizabeth was actually able to comfort another young mother, albeit a much younger mother, uh, who was expecting a miraculous baby of her own in that time period, her relative Mary. At this time, even in the womb, John the Baptist was making the way for Jesus because it is through Mary and her interaction with Elizabeth, it is after Mary's interaction with Elizabeth, as Kevin preached last week, after that, that Mary is able to sing the Magnificat. So it is through her time with Elizabeth, through the fact that John the Baptist in the womb is filled with the Spirit and jumps at Christ's preborn presence, it is after that that Mary herself is filled and is able to sing to the Lord. And she sings her famous hymn of praise, his mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. Elizabeth's generation, Mary's generation, and all other generations who fear the Lord. So then later, John is born, and a still speechless Zechariah is there to confirm his name. And I'll, this has always been one of my favorite comical passages of scripture. I don't know if it was funny at the time, but, uh, but when I read it, it is, it is amusing to me because you have all of these relatives and all these people around. They've come because they recognize that the Lord has blessed Elizabeth, that he has given her a child, even in her old age. And they've come to gather around and they ask Elizabeth, because Zachariah is not helping, they ask Elizabeth, what name do you want for your child? She gives them the name that Gabriel told Zachariah and they go, what, why John? That doesn't make any sense. He should be named after his father. He should have some reference to his father in his name. So then they go ask Zechariah, who still can't speak, takes out a tablet, not a computer, um, and silently writes on it, his name is John, and has to hold it up and affirm for everyone around, Elizabeth wasn't lying to you. I can't speak to you. His name is John. John, a name which in Hebrew means God is gracious. So almost against, almost against his original will, Zechariah has to write down for everyone to see, my son's name means God is gracious, even though I didn't believe God could be that gracious when I was first told about it. Zechariah's had about nine months to think about what God is doing and what his role in the story is. And previously he might've known intellectually that God was good or that God was powerful or that God was holy he might even have known that God was gracious, but he didn't believe it, not to his core, not yet. Now though, he writes down the name that God has given him and suddenly his mouth and his spirit are free 
free to praise God for what God has done. And John, and John has to understand, he's not going to have my name because this is not my plan. God is driving the ship. I'm ready to just believe that he's doing something new. And it's in the new spirit that the old priest is ready to sing and praise God for what he is doing. Which brings to our next point, the faithfulness of God. So what is God doing? Picking up in our passage, then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied, blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued from the hands of our enemies, would serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, in his presence all of our days. So Zachariah's trust in the Lord has been rekindled. He is singing, blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel. Why? As we already said, Zechariah has lived a long life of faithful priestly, priestly service to God. So what is causing him to praise God with such fervor now? And the answer, you might think, would only be limited to the fact that he has now had a son. That in his old age, he is praising God for the birth of his son. But this John the Baptist is not mentioned anywhere in the first section of this text. So far, this song is not at all about John the Baptist. No, he's actually come to realize that between the birth of his son and the coming birth of Jesus, because he now knows, Zach, he knows that, that Mary and Joseph are expecting their boy, that God is at work in inexplicably powerful ways. And he's arrived at the conviction that God, who had not sent a prophet since the Old Testament, is now beginning to fulfill the plans that he promised in the Old Testament. Or another way of putting it, the fairy tales are true. They were true then, and the world is beginning to operate by their rules again. And I don't mean to imply that Zachariah didn't believe that God could still work, or that the stories that he read in the Old Testament were made up or exaggerated. I just mean that God has now grabbed his attention and has turned him to the reality of the promises. He is awake, Zechariah, to the fact that God is revealing and writing new redemption history in Zechariah's life right now. And that everything that God had said is up for grabs and determines how God is going to fulfill it. So, what does God being at work mean for Zechariah? And what is he saying in the first part of this song? Number one, Zechariah seems to understand that God is restoring the throne. You see it in the first part of the verse here. God has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant, David. Right at the beginning of the song, Zechariah is calling attention to the fact that God is bringing about someone from the house of David, which would be the tribe of Judah, the house of the kings of Israel. So you would stop right now, we would pause and we would say, wait a minute, we already heard Zechariah 
and Elizabeth's history. In this song, Zechariah is not starting the song with news about, about his own son because his own son is not from the house of David or the tribe of Judah. John the Baptist is from the tribe of Levi. That's, who, that's where uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth come from. They'd be the Levitical tribe of priests. So from the very, very beginning, Zechariah is not actually talking about his own offspring. He's talking about someone else's offspring. He's praising God for being at work in the house of David. He's not talking about John. He's talking about Mary and Joseph's boy who hasn't even been born yet. Joseph, which we know from Matthew, Joseph is the one who's in the line of David. He knows that John is coming to fulfill the scriptures about a prophet who is set to precede the Lord. But Zechariah has his sights set on the one after John. Malachi 3.1. This is another prophecy about John the Baptist. He says, see, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord that you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. So, he knows that his son John carries a double promise. That John will grow up to be a great prophet of the Lord. But more importantly, that after John, the Lord himself will suddenly come into his temple. The Lord of armies, he is coming and he will raise up a horn of salvation. So what do we know? And what does Zechariah know about what God had promised to do through the house of David? Well, we know from 2 Samuel 7, what God promised to do. He speaks to David and he says, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Or if we go back even just to, to our uh, Advent candle reading from the book of Isaiah, what does it say in Isaiah 9? This was just from this morning. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom and establish it and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Do you see that it's all wrapped up? What God was saying in Isaiah is using almost the same language that God is saying in Malachi and all of it says that there's going to be someone coming before and then when the person that actually comes, the Lord will come into his temple, look out because he's establishing his throne forever. And what else does, do we know from this? From what, what else does Zechariah sing about? Well, in verse 73, he actually references God's covenant with Abraham, which predates his time with David. God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. He promised a safe nation for his people to live in. He promised protection, and he promised that Abraham's descendants would outnumber the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. So, up until this point, though, Zechariah's perception was that Israel was in subjugation under a foreign power, Rome, and under an unfaithful king, Herod. 
and as to the question of innumerable descendants that he had promised Abraham, Zechariah had only ever seen Abraham's descendants decrease in power and number. So based only upon the promises that God made to Abraham, it looked to a faithful Israelite that things were not playing out very well. Now, though, he has firsthand evidence that God is still playing by covenantal rules and that he is still remembering his people. And so all the other material problems, the real questions, well, how, Lord, will you deliver us? How will you bring this about? What will you do? They're still there, but they're put into the perspective the perspective that, that you know that God can do it. And so the only question you ask is not, God, is it even possible for you to do this? The question you ask is, God, how will you do it? And when will you do it? God's activity is enough proof that God's outcomes are certain. If God is at work, you can trust that God will see the work to completion. Interesting to note, this prophecy, what Zacharias already said, it's written in past tense even though it's about things God is going to do in the future. You know, what does he say? Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel. He has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant, David. But this horn of salvation in the house of his servant, David, that he's supposed to raise up, hasn't been born yet. And not only that, we already know that Zechariah is old. Zechariah, in all likelihood, is going to be dead by the time his own son, John the Baptist, comes into his fulfillment in ministry and Jesus comes after him. So where does Zachariah's confidence come from? It's the confidence of an old man that says that God is working. And if God is working, I can trust God to the ends. Sometimes I think we just forget to remember that God is always working for the good of those who love him. A story, this is actually something that the church that Redeemer got to be a part of, of you know, maybe about six months ago now, which was that uh, a missionary partner that we support, uh, Josh and Joanna Cook, who are in Thailand right now, uh, were looking for funds for a vehicle. They needed a car. And to give you a quick background on this story, uh, uh, Josh and I have been friends for a long time. We were roommates in college together before they went overseas. Um, and, uh, and he reached out and uh, he just said, hey, we're in Thailand now. Uh, they used to be in another country overseas, a closed country, that they got kicked out of in 2020 due to COVID. So they spent two years or so uncertain of what their calling was going to be because they, uh, they no longer knew exactly where the Lord was gonna take them. And even then, their company that they worked for called them to Thailand. So they went to Thailand where they're trying to serve faithfully in Thailand. And, uh, and they reach out, they say, well, we would we could really use a vehicle because we just, we just need to get around the city a little bit more. They've got four boys. And, uh, and so the church responded. We, we raised that issue to the church and I think the money to buy a car was raised in about two weeks uh, and then sent over to them. And then it was on a call. I was on a call with Josh and you know what Josh said? He said, man, that was the first time that we have had any confidence that the Lord was still with us while we're overseas because they're serving faithfully, right? They never stopped. But there's still the perception that, well, whose plan is this? Because this plan didn't make any sense to me. We were serving faithfully over there, and then we got pulled out of it. Surely God could have put us back into it, but now what are we doing? This isn't our calling. 
and you need something like that, it's not about the money, it's not about the vehicle, it's just about the fact that God showed up and cared for them. And so they say, all right, that's it, that's what we need. Now, whatever happens, we're serving in the faithfulness of the Lord because we believe he's still with us. Zachariah should have known his entire life that God was still with them and working in Israel. Because that's what his name literally means. God remembers. It was Zechariah who needed to remember himself and believe it. So with the knowledge of the coming of the Lord, as well as the prophet who was to go before him, Zechariah can rest easy because God has remembered these covenants both to Abraham and David. And the knowledge and awareness that God has not forgotten them is enough to fill his heart with praise. So now comes the final part of Zechariah's song, the promise of God. God's faithfulness is, remember, is, is in remembering the old covenants. And he addresses this next line directly to his boy, to John. Some of the most poetic and meaningful words in scripture. He says, and you child, you will be called a prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. These don't sound like the words of a tired old priest anymore. He says, John, my boy, do you know what makes me proudest about you? you will be a prophet of the most high God. You'll be the last prophet of the old covenant, in fact, just like I'm one of the last priests of the old covenant. And the glorious news, John, is they won't need us anymore because the Lord is coming. There are three prophecies about John the Baptist, and we've already looked at two, one in what Gabriel said to Zechariah and then one in what Zechariah already said. But Zechariah actually references the last prophecy uh, that comes from the book of Isaiah at the end of the song. Isaiah 40, three through five. A voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth and the rough places a plain. And then the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So what is the final prophet's job? John is to go before Jesus, giving his people a knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. He is there to grease the tracks, to get everybody's attention, so that by the time the Lord himself shows up, everybody is already looking for what's going to happen next. And we're told in Luke 3, when John's about 29 years old, he goes out into the wilderness and he begins teaching. He's teaching, he's baptizing, he's calling for repentance. And he gains such attention that the crowds actually question whether John himself is the Messiah. But he is quick to correct them. And he says this, it says, now the people were waiting expectantly and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. 
And John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one is, who is more powerful than I is coming, and I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That same Holy Spirit that caused Zechariah to sing today, when the Messiah comes, he intends to baptize his followers with that spirit. So between these three texts, what do we know about the one who's coming after John? One, we know that he is not from here. Like all the other prophets of old, including John himself, was just a human that was raised up to serve the Lord. But this is somebody who is coming from on high. He's not from around town. He's coming in human form, but he is not from us. Every other prophet of the Old Testament, they were faithful, they served the Lord, but they were not. They didn't come from heaven themselves. They didn't visit us from on high. They spoke the words of the one who did. What else about this person who's coming after John? He himself is a light to guide us from death and darkness and into peace. He himself. The old prophets, the old covenant was people pointing to the Lord. They're going to speak the Lord's words that were given to them. And they're going to say, trust the Lord, follow the Lord. But the person who's coming, they themselves will be the light. And lastly, he gives us access to to the spirit and power of God. This person. John's uh, John's no slouch. It's fair to say, John probably has all of us licked in terms of righteousness before the Lord. And that's fair to say because Jesus himself said it. He said there's no person born among men who's more faithful than John. So if John is that faithful, if he wins the most holy human award, how powerful is the one coming that he is not even worthy to untie the straps of his sandals? How do you think John felt when Jesus showed up to be baptized? How humbling must that have been? So who is this person that is not from here, who himself is a light to guide us from death and darkness, who gives us access to the spirit and power of God directly? Who is that person? The one we sing about, Jesus. Son of God, loves pure light. Radiant beams from his holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace. That's why we sing that song. Because God in his mercy is pulling out all of the stops. And Zechariah, in the spirit and power of God, saw what was coming. Jesus is the main character in Zechariah's song. Why is John the Baptist important at all? He's important because Jesus was coming. Why is Zechariah singing? He's singing because Jesus was coming. And why is Jesus important? Why is Jesus coming important? Because it showed Zechariah that God, who is gracious, remembers his old covenants and his old promises to his people at a time when it looked like hope was gone and that God had given up on the human experiment. It was at that time he played his trump card. He's not doing it because of our righteousness. He's doing it because of our weakness. And in Christ, he's holding up both ends of the promise, his and ours. And somehow miraculously, he offers to guide a people living in darkness, us, 
onto the path of peace through the forgiveness of sins and the knowledge of salvation. And so you'll forgive me. But when you know that that's the spirit of Christmas and that's the cause, God with us, dwelling with us, Emmanuel, it cannot help but make some of the more generic, cheesy spirit of Christmas stuff seem hollow because there is so much more richness to be had in the story that God is telling. So if you don't believe that story, what keeps you from it? Please talk to somebody. Ask the, have the humility to ask the question. If it isn't true, have you wrestled with the implications of what else you believe about the world? Sin, goodness, God, heaven, hell. If it is true, what holds you back from believing it? Because here's a promise of God. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But I could imagine that a lot of us in this church are more like Zechariah. We've walked with the Lord for some time and in faithfulness, but maybe our minds have grown dull to some of his promises. Were God to send an angel to show up and tell us the will of God for our lives, would we believe them? Or would we say, how can that be? Well, I would say we take heart because God restores people from that state too. It might take being quiet for a while and listening to him. For Zechariah, it took about nine months. Maybe you could do it in less. You could try. Um, we've already defined John and Zechariah. God is gracious and God remembers. But the mother of this family has a name as well, Elizabeth. God is my promise. And between all three, we have God remembering his promise and being gracious to his people. And when we believe that, we get to say like Elizabeth did after she conceived, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace from among the people. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that our hearts will be turned to you. We long for it, Lord. We pray that the Spirit will work in us to see things and see dimensions about you that, that we have neglected to see. And we thank you that you were so patient and so kind that you knew before you saved us, Lord, that, uh, that we would be difficult. Lord, I pray now, um, this is a time of year when, when spiritual things become easier to talk about, when, when even people that are far from the Lord uh, can't avoid hearing praises about him sung. So I pray that we'd sing them. Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us to show us, show us your love and your greatness and your kindness and your compassion. Be present with us. We thank you for the spirit that shows that you are good. And we thank you that Jesus came. And in Christ's name, amen.